Hello, I'm Evelyn Uribe, and I was part of the production team on The Estate. Before our investigation began, our host, Alex Estrada, sat down to talk to his siblings about their father, Rosalie Estrada. In this bonus episode, you will hear them sharing their relationship with Rosie and their memories about the murder case. The Estrada siblings are seven in total. The three oldest are from Rosie's first marriage, while the four youngest come from his marriage to Alex's mother. Each of them experienced Rosie in unique, different ways, making their responses very diverse. However, their insights have proven invaluable, helping us paint a broader picture of Rosalio Estrada. During his different conversations with his siblings, Alex would start by painting a picture of their father, asking them to describe him. Here he is talking to Francesca, his oldest sister and Rosalio's first child. If you could describe dad uh, in a single word or one attribute, what would it be? Family-oriented. You know, family was everything. Just we had to stick with the family, everything, you know, we only socialize with his family. He just, I can't explain it. I mean, we came, he had 13 kids, three of them died. So nine siblings and there was just, uh, you know, family around all the time. Everybody mostly lived here in town. And so just family was, If somebody called you and needed something, you needed to do it for them. He was very quiet, very soft-spoken. But if he got mad, that was a different story. (laughs) And I think I'm a little bit like him when we're speaking just regularly. Like people say, what did you say? We're kind of mumbling. But um, he was just pretty quiet. So my one favorite memory is, and this happened all the time. So how they had the liquor stores when my dad would come home for dinner. Um, he had a desk and at the desk he would put his um, suit jacket and put it on the chair. Then he'd come to the table and then he would tell me, oh, go look in the left front pocket. And then I'd go get it. It was always a Hershey candy bar. <laughs> And, you know, that was great. Still, Francesca reminds Alex that their father wasn't always like that. There's a difference between when he was younger and when he was older. And, I mean, I remember, of course, when he was older, but he was much more mellower when he was older. When he was young, you know, he was out all the time. At night, my mom would complain. (laughs) Um, So at home... When he was younger, we always ate at, you know, we didn't go out or anything. When he got older, he was eating out all the time, restaurants. He never cooked when when I was younger. And then when he got older, he cooked all the time. So it was just, um, you know, he got older and things changed. Things did change. Here's the youngest Estrada, Olivia. 
Um, to me, he was, there was a, arrogance for sure. He definitely always thought he was the smartest person in the room. I think there was a compassionate side to him, but it certainly did not reverberate through his children. Um, so I think that he, you know, he would tend to, you know, really try to take care of other people. Um, that is something that I did admire about him. Um, I often was like very resentful uh, because he didn't like share that affection with us, or at least that's not what we felt. Um, yeah. And I think he was like private and like probably a little damaged as we all are, but I think he, he probably experienced a lot growing up. However, Rosie still remained a mystery for some of the siblings. Here's Nathaniel Estrada, Alex's brother. Yeah, my dad just didn't like to talk about himself, really. He, like, he had a couple of go-to stories that sort of had some, some moral, you know, or whatever, you know, some lesson to learn. But generally speaking, he never really talked about, you know, his hopes or his fears or like what, you know, what he thought his life was going to be like or any of that stuff. You know, he never really talk to you on, or talk to me specifically on like that, on kind of a more human level, I guess, where, where uh, we really connected in that way. How each of the Strata siblings came to learn about Calvin Jones and the murder trial will be coming up after the break. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's Journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. And just like each of the siblings had different ways to describe Rosie, they also learned about Anthony Virgilio, Calvin Jones, and the 1973 murder case in different ways. Francesca is the one who remembers it most vividly, as she was already in her teens when the trial happened. His trial, we were very sheltered. I mean, like I'd read it in the newspaper because I would read the newspaper and we never talked to him really about it. There was nothing said. I never comprehended that they could go to prison until Calvin did go to prison and my dad was acquitted. So, I mean, I never, I mean, he would tell me like, you know, this is crazy. I could go to prison. That was the only time I ever heard him like worry about that. Other than that, he never talked about it. 
Not all of the Strada siblings got to experience the trial firsthand. Leonor, Nathaniel, Olivia, and Alex were actually born after the trial had happened. And so they ended up learning about the case in different ways. Here's Leonor. I think I had this burning curiosity for quite a while. And then I sort of got my courage up and asked Francesca. And then Francesca sort of explained, um, like, what happened. And then I kind of went to the library and, like, looked up some stuff. It was pre-internet, so I couldn't really, I couldn't Google at that time. I don't even think we had a computer. Um, And why didn't I ask my dad? I mean, I think it was kind of, it's just kind of a scary thing. Certainly, like, nobody's going to tell you, like, I, I don't think... Who's going to tell your kids, your like eight-year-old, like, yeah, I did it and I got away with it because he still could go to prison. Just like Alex remembers how he had been taught to answer the phone in case Calvin called, the rest of the siblings were under the same instructions. Here's Nathaniel. You know, we knew who Calvin was. You know, we knew... We never spoke to Calvin though, right? I mean, like we basically, you know, picked up the phone and we had a, a recording telling us that it was Calvin Jones, in, you know, at the California Penitentiary or whatever. Um, but yeah, so we never spoke to him. You know, if my dad wasn't home, we were just supposed to hang the phone up. Um, and like, if you, if my dad was there, we were supposed to get my dad, you know, but like we never, I've never spoken to Calvin still to this day. Here's Olivia. So do you remember growing up uh, getting phone calls from Calvin Jones? Absolutely. Yep. That was something um, that we talked a little bit about. So I think you already know this, but Calvin did call the day dad passed away. And so we spoke on the phone about that. But yeah, I do remember him calling. I mean, I want to say it was as frequently as once a week, but it might have been less frequent than that. Um, But he did call, I mean, relatively frequently for someone who was in jail. (laughs) So that was, yeah, that was sort of another question. So do you, do you remember how old you were when you learned about him and his connection to dad? Yeah, I think I was in high school. So um, I remember dad and I were cooking in the kitchen um, and we, he brought it up very casually about like the the whole murder trial. And obviously I think he had communicated with us. The, uh, the narrative from his perspective was that it was a setup. And so he had kind of, he described, you know, basically being approached by someone, a politician or like someone related to a political campaign. I don't remember specifically which one it was saying, you know, if you, if you continue on with this campaign for Perino, you know, we're basically going to ruin your life. And I remember at the end of the conversation, bringing up to dad saying something like, you know, why didn't, you know, have you ever thought about writing a book or doing something like that? And he didn't think it was interesting enough to warrant that. And so in terms of the information, just things that you learn in your own perceptions and your understanding of the, of the case from what you heard, like, what do you feel? Do you feel like Dad was uh, involved, was a participant in the murder of Tony Virgilio. I mean, it's hard. Like, I I obviously read through the case files and, like, the, you know, whatever was outlined by the district attorney at that point obviously had to have, like, a pretty clear um, motive and narrative. And so, like, you know, when you read it from that perspective, it it makes a lot of sense, right? 
But at the same time, and this is something I didn't even think about yesterday, you know, it's difficult. I There was so much time between when um, Tony was murdered to like when they arrested dad. Um, it, it, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I thought it was about like six years or so. About seven years. Yeah. The murder, the murder happened on December 31st, New Year's Eve, 1973. And then they were charged in, I think in April 19 or March, 1980. Yeah. And I mean, at that point, you're, you know, when they try to go with this, like eyewitness testimony, you know, that's one, I think one of the hardest, I think to prove in court, um, in, you know, even if they arrested dad and the trial took like six months after it happened, I mean, people's memories definitely change. And then when you go six years into the future, it's like, there is so much that, you know, they have these eyewitness testimonies that they end up throwing out, um, of people saying that, you know, um, Calvin said this thing to them in a bar and it's just like, you know, I really find it kind of far-fetched. Like I had to think about what Calvin and I talked about on the day that dad died, such a significant day in our lives. And it was even difficult to like, remember the particular verbiage of it. And, you know, it certainly could have happened the way that this person had said, you know, that Calvin was just so kind of said so nonchalantly that like, oh yeah, this guy's dead now. It just seemed like really kind of out of place. More of this bonus episode of The Estate will be coming up after the break. Do you feel like that was involved? Do you think he was a participant in the murder of Tony Virgilio? It was a question Alex asked to all of his siblings. Here's a snippet of his conversation with Nathaniel. In terms of the case itself, just based on sort of like what you've uh, you've been told, uh, what you've observed and what you knew about dad, do you think he had something to do with the death of Tony Virgilio? Hmm. You know, I've gone back and forth about this a lot without, I guess, without seeing, you know, much of the evidence or, you know, hearing any of the interrogation or any of that stuff without really having any access to any of that information, I wouldn't be surprised, I don't think. So, I mean, in my, in my mind, I think dad probably had something to do with it. I don't know how involved he was, but I feel like, you know, dad was a smart guy. Dad, like, knew and also dad like you know as we all know dad had a bit of a temper and so it wouldn't surprise me really to to know and dad and dad held grudges you know i mean like there's just loads of of stuff that kind of in my mind i guess um obviously painted by my own experience of dad um that would seem to lend itself to the fact that he probably did i think I don't know. I don't think, I think different times in my life, I've had different feelings about it. I I would say right now, maybe like slightly towards the not guilty side of things, but like, I don't, I don't know. I I don't know. I I mean, I'm like, my dad said to me once, like, uh, we were talking about something and he was like, you know, people do, people do a lot of things for money (laughs) or like, 
one time there was this girl who was bullying me in seventh grade and he was kind of like for $200, you can send someone on a ride and they don't come back or like comments like this, you know, where you're like, Hmm. Um, and, um, he could certainly be violent. So I don't know. When Alex asked Francesca for her own theory in regards to the trial, this was her answer. My theory is, I mean, that they arrested them years later. Um, there's no new evidence. It's not like, oh, we have the DNA and, you know, somebody was there. So it's nothing, you know, that there's no gun. They don't arrest even though... They say somebody's the shooter. Nobody gets arrested for shooting. <laughs> so, so, I mean, it, it just seems crazy. So, I mean, I have to agree that there it's a crazy thing. And for Calvin to do 30 years for something that's, you know, there a shooter is not even arrested, it's just crazy, yeah. you know. And do you think, you know, I'm asking this question to everybody. Do you think dad was a good person? A good question. Um, yeah, I think this is something that we talk about often. Like this is out of all the conversations that we have um, related to dad after he's passed. I think this is the one that comes up the most. I think that, you know, he, like everyone else, is a person with flaws and has to deal with like, the demons of things that he's done in the past that he hasn't necessarily come to terms with. I would say, I, I don't know if I can even answer that question. I, I, I don't know. It's hard for me to, me to say, yes, he is a good person, especially because if he is tied to this at all, right. If he is someone who is responsible for the death of another person because he needed money. Um, yeah. To me, it's like, how could you, you know, get to that point where you would say in your mind that this is an okay thing to do? And I mean, I can't justify that, like, by any means. That's something that's like, <laughs> not fathomable to me. And I think, you know, there are sympathies that I have for him, because he did live a pretty hard life, considering that, like, he, I think, growing up and having to work in the fields and also go to school and, and, and deal with, um, you know, racism throughout his entire life, you know, I, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt and say, like, just because I don't view you as like the best person doesn't mean that your life wasn't valuable. And that's where that's as far as I can go. But um, it's very difficult for me to even say like, dad was a good person. But he certainly was, I think, a complicated person. Um, and I can, that's as, as far as I can go with that. Yeah. I think dad wanted to be a good person and wanted to be a good father and a good husband and all of that stuff. But I think that he felt trapped and he felt desperate and he wanted to get himself and our family to like some other place that was better than where we were. And I think that, you know, I don't know if it's the, maybe he thought the ends justified the means or what, but, um, yeah, I just think dad was complicated. So, I mean, I don't think, I don't necessarily think he was a bad person. I think he's a good person who had problems. I think that, uh, yeah, I think like lots, 
all like everybody does bad things. Everybody does good things. Dad did many good things. Dad did many bad things. Like, was he a good person? How am I, who am I to like make a judgment about whether dad was good or bad? I'm not. I hope you've enjoyed this closer look into the Strada siblings and their relationship with Rosie Estrada. Thank you for listening. A third bonus episode will be coming your way next week. If you enjoyed our podcast, please help us with a five-star rating, write a review, and share it with your friends. The state is available for you to listen wherever you get your podcasts. The Estate was produced by Sonoro in partnership with Tinderfoot TV. Hosted by me, Alex Estrada and Angelina Mosier-Salazar. Reported by Angelina Mosier-Salazar. Investigated by Angelina Mosier-Salazar, Alex Estrada, and Evelyn Uribe. Written by Angelina Mosier-Salazar and Alex Estrada. With help from Evelyn Uribe and Carlos Arenado. Edited by Ross Terrell and Jasmine Romero. Fact check by Sarah Moda and Evelyn Uribe. Mix and sound design by Manuel Parra and Daniel Padilla. Engineering by Josh Hahn, Sam Baer, and Brett Tubin at the Relic Room in New York City. Original music by Ernesto Aguirre. Our theme song is by Marcus Bagala. Executive produced by Alex Estrada. From Sonoro, executive producers are Joshua Weinstein and Camila Victoriano. From Tenderfoot TV, executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. Special thanks to Lisa Pollock, Sarah Boannon, Christian Yatar, Rodrigo Crespo, Carmen Graterol, and Adriana Broger 